I'm still trying to find the deal so that I can get stuff for better, but I'm not doing it at the expense of not going to a restaurant. Uh, I'm not doing it at the expense of not going on a trip. So I prioritize the things I want, find ways, if possible, to get a better deal on them. And if not, pay full freight because I decided they're important. Welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast with your host, Jamila Souffrant. As a money expert who walks her talk, she helps brave journeyers like you get out of debt, save, invest, and build real wealth. Join her on the journey to launch to financial freedom in, in five, four, three, two, one. If you want the episode show notes for this episode, go to journeytolaunch.com or click the description of wherever you're listening to this episode. In the show notes, you'll get the transcribed version of the conversation, the links that we mentioned, and so much more. Also, whether you are an OG journeyer or brand new to the podcast, I've created a free jumpstart guide to help you on your financial freedom journey. It includes the top episodes to listen to, stages to go through to reach financial freedom, resources, and so much more. You can go to journeytolaunch.com slash jumpstart to get your guide right now. Okay, let's hop into the episode. Hey, 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 journeyers. Welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast. This week we have on Chris Hutchins. He is an avid life hacker. And when I say avid, he hacks everything. (laughs) Financial optimizer and host of the award-winning podcast, All the Hacks, where he shares his quest to upgrade his life, without having to spend a fortune. These passions have led Chris to collect millions of points. I think I read somewhere you have 12 million current points. I think it might be up to like almost 14 right now, which really just is not a stamp of uh, honor. It's a stamp that I need to be traveling more. (laughs) Or give me some. Hello. All right. So, (laughs) but um, we're getting to this, but you are a founder. You've sold multiple companies very savvy in business. And so I'm really happy to have you on the show. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. All right, Chris, let's take it back a bit. Um, I obviously want to get to how you have all these points, but I want to go back a bit to your background because you are, like I said before, you're a founder, you've started a bunch of companies or co-founded some companies, you've sold companies. You're not doing your business, your podcast full time. But I want to learn more about kind of like the beginning stages of starting your businesses. And then like, why did you give all that up to run a podcast? Like, is this where the money's at? I mean, <laughs> we'll, we'll get there. But I, I would say you can t- typically everyone I know ends up finding money wherever they find their passion. It just sometimes takes a long time. And it's not always easy to make the jump. For me, I'm actually giving a talk on Saturday about podcasting. And I was like, I'm not a, I wanted to talk about how I was never really a content creator. And then I went back and I was like looking at photos and videos from childhood. And I was like, oh, there's me making uh, like a flyer for a cookie stand. There's me like making a video for a school thing. So maybe I have been a content person without even knowing it. But I think my story, the, the main arc to it is I never really knew what I wanted to do. Like, I didn't know that I would be hosting a podcast. I didn't know I'd be starting companies. I didn't even know I wanted to work in technology. In fact, when I graduated college, I didn't even know you could work at a company that built software. Like, the thought never crossed my mind. And so my career kind of professionally after college was moving straight to New York to go work at an investment bank because 
people told me that was the best job you can get. And I was like, well, I I don't know what I want to do. So why not do the thing that everyone says is the best job? Right, right. Well, so with that, right? So you said you didn't really know these career paths existed, the kind of out of the box or more creative. I mean, even though this is like technical and you seem to obviously have had the the mathematical mind or at least investment mind to go into investment banking like this. There's usually that side where people usually who do that are not necessarily risk takers or creative. So for you then, when you started to work in your investment banking, then how did you discover or find that entrepreneurship and building businesses was another pathway? Yeah. And by the way, I I don't consider myself very risk taking. Others might disagree. And and maybe I am in, in a personal life, but definitely not professionally. So I was working in New York and I heard about this event called Startup Weekend. And there had been one in Boulder, Colorado, and there was another one coming to Boston. And I was like, this is so cool. Like all through college, I was a nerd on the internet. I just never knew that that could intersect professionally, right? Like it's as if I loved painting, but I never thought I could be a painter. I loved the internet. I just never thought that was a job. And this event was anyone could come if you're an engineer, a designer, or me, someone who didn't have any raw talents that I knew existed, you could come and we would build startups over the weekend. And I went to this event and I paired up with four or five other people and we built an app for Windows that would every, it was a random thing, but every 30 to 90 minutes, it would pop up and say, hey, maybe you should take a break and it would give you an exercise to do. Uh, It was called Desk Happy. It went nowhere. Maybe 250 people downloaded it and like, 200 of them were the immediate family and friends of the people that created it. But in a weekend, we built a product, we shipped it, people anywhere in the world could download it and use it. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is what I want to do with my life. But I wasn't a risk taker. So I went to the company I was working at and said, could you transfer me to San Francisco? Because I knew after that experience on the weekend, that's where people are doing this thing. You know, nowadays there are startups you can go create and incubators and venture capitalists in lots of cities. But back in 2008, it seemed like if you wanted to go all in on this industry, moving to the Bay Area was what you did. So I moved to the Bay Area and I thought I will slowly start to get into this industry before I quit my job. Well, about a month later, I got laid off in in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. So I got forced into it. it. It wasn't, you know, I had the you know, the gumption to take the risk to quit my job and start this new career. No, I got, you know, let go and I had to do it on my own. And so I was kind of forced into entrepreneurship the first time. And at the time, I was disappointed. Now, in hindsight, I'm very thankful because if I were still in that job, I would be be miserable. And so when you say you were forced, so what was that first company? And talk a little bit about the building of apps, because I have a question about your experience in you know, did you need experience in coding? Was it that your partners understood coding? Because, you know, I feel like we all have an app or idea in, in, in us. And I'm like, I don't know how to code, but I have an idea for a lot of things. So how did you, <laughs> what skill sets allowed you to then build uh, something or build the things that you started to build? Yeah. So the so I didn't have any of those skills. And so when I got laid off, I was like, what do I build? Well, I don't have any of those skill sets. So I need to build something that isn't software. So the first thing I built was a conference called Laid Off Camp. And it was in the wake of 2008. And it was just, let's do events around the country for people who've been laid off to learn from other people who had been laid off. And we had older people who'd interviewed thousands and thousands of people in their careers teaching young people how to interview. We had young people teaching older people how to make LinkedIn profiles. It was great. But like like I said, no software, nothing in that world. And through a series of conversations and meeting interesting people, I found that the role that I could fulfill was something along the lines of kind of sales and business development. 
And, and so I joined the first startup eventually doing a role of business development, which is effectively like finding customers for a product. But I wasn't able to build the product. I wasn't able to do it. I, I hadn't started a company that built software at this point in my career. But in that process, I just dedicated myself to spending as much time as I could with the engineers, the product managers, the designers to understand how it all worked. And I built a muscle that I learned later was called product management, which is understanding how to build a product. You can't actually write the code. You can't actually design the interface. Or maybe you can, but it won't look great. But you can understand how to put the pieces together and mainly understand the user need. Once I understood that, I ultimately left to join a few people to start a company where I fulfilled that role. Engineering fulfilled the building it. Design fulfilled the making it functional. And together, that kind of trifecta of someone that understands the customer, someone that can build the software, and someone that can design the software can put all that together and, and ship a product. But I definitely didn't do it on my own. And the other people necessary, you could argue, are much more necessary than I was. Right. Well, then, I mean, I'm sure, though, you've met a lot of people who had your roles, business development or product managers, and they weren't able to, I don't know, like, just do those roles. It sounds like, though, if you're going out, you need to find customers, you need to help promote the product or at least sell the product the social side of it, right? Like I find you as someone, we met at FinCon a couple years ago and, you know, you're very outgoing for the most part. I think when you're speaking to people, you're outgoing, right? And so like that does take an amount of social awareness and ability to speak to people. But then sometimes when I think of these roles, I think of like people who don't know how to communicate or who are awkward, don't like being behind like the phone or the computer. So is that also just something you had as a personality growing up that happened to really mix well with these that helped you to take off? Yeah, it's funny. If I look back in childhood, I was always willing to to speak up. I was never shy, but it got me in a lot of trouble, right? I would speak up to teachers because I was like, I think what we're doing is wrong. We should do something different. And I would say I had a healthy disrespect for authority as a child. But but so I guess I always was willing to put myself out there and try random things. And I learned that the more you could do that, the more you could elicit a reaction, sometimes negative, sometimes positive, but you never get the positive if you don't try. And so I was constantly trying to do any random thing to put myself out there, often to come up with an outcome that you know was something I couldn't have otherwise, because as much as I certainly didn't grow up underprivileged, I ended up going to a private school and my parents were among the few parents that didn't give their kids like unlimited resources. So it was a boarding school. And at night, people wanted to order pizza and eat pizza because that's what you did in high school. But I didn't have a credit card to order the pizza. So like I, I couldn't order the pizza. And if I did once, it would be like my whole budget for the month. So I started ordering pizza and I would order one pizza. And then I would just try to go sell slices to kids at night so that I could make back the money so that the next night I could order pizza again. And I would eat two and sell six. And like that was my little high school business was like walking around trying to sell slices of pizza. And it worked out great. So like I just always was willing to put myself out there because I needed to do that to get some outcome that I probably couldn't have achieved otherwise because I was young, because I didn't have the resources, because I didn't know better. And I don't know, I just love putting myself out there. But I will say not everyone can do it instinctively. Not everyone has that thing. But I think it's something you can learn. And I did an interview with a woman uh, who you probably know because I think you shared a stage with Vanessa Van Edwards. Yes. Yeah. So at I, I met her actually at FinCon. And she is a researcher. I think she's based in Austin. And she did an episode of my podcast. It was episode 46 on charismatic communication. 
And she did all this research to identify that to be a charismatic communicator, you need the perfect balance of warmth and competence. And so sometimes you might say, I'm an introvert. I, I know all the data. I know all the numbers. If you can just force yourself to be a little warmer, you can find this blend where people are kind of more drawn to your, you as a conversationalist. You can also just listen more. I feel like in a conversation, you think, oh, I should be talking and sharing and sharing to make people like me. At the end of the day, if you just let people talk and, and just you react and listen, they will also be engaged. So I think there are a lot of hacks to learn how to kind of win in conversational skills. That episode I did is one where we dove into a lot of them. We even did it on YouTube because there's like some visual hand cues and that stuff. But I'd say it was definitely by default, I was probably more extroverted but I don't think it's something you can't learn to do. Right, right. And it's just also, so just for, you know, fellow parents out there who have <laughs> kids who are rambunctious or who speak a lot or up for themselves or that healthy level of disrespect. I just think, you know, I always say like, it's a sign of even if you yourself notice that I, I was also like that as a child and not afraid of authority. And I will, you know, defend myself if I need to. And I, that comes through in my adult life. And I think there's just so many aspects of our, our personalities whether we didn't know back then, um, maybe other people didn't understand it. Maybe we could have put some people off, but whatever it is that makes you you, um, that may have not been seen as an advantage as you grow, like in, whether that's in your career, financial life, like these are things that if you learn how to use them, are like very great assets to whatever journey you're on. Um, and you know, you can hack your way into positions or careers or into money, understanding that. I totally agree. But I have to go back and ask, are there parents out there who have kids that aren't rambunctious? Because I don't, I am unfamiliar with such a thing, but I'm jealous. You know, I think, and that's interesting because I have my kids, you know, they're nine, seven, and five. And I think kids, it's, it's funny, my, at school, they're rule followers. Like they follow the rules and they're very obedient from what I'm told. Um, but at home and with people they're comfortable with, oh no, they, you know, they definitely <laughs> do not follow what I say at least. So I think I think most kids, I don't know, I, I only can speak for like my kids and the nieces and nephews that I have, but it's an interesting um, also being able to turn it on and off where you need to is important. I'm sure that is a something that maybe you and Vanessa or someone else has discovered. It's like you have to know when to use it and when it when it when it helps you and when it harms you to to speak up in certain situations. Yeah. So Chris, I do want to fast forward a bit because I know some of the impetus or reasoning behind selling a business is because maybe it's just that was the design of it. Like, you know, you're building something to sell or it's just the right time and money. But for you, did you know like what you were going to do after the like your final business was sold? What were your next steps or what you thought you'd do? So I would say selling a business has this allure of being a success. But just to be clear, both times we sold the companies that we built... It was because the company did not stand on its own. So the first time we realized about a year in that we, we'd had this incubator. And the idea was we we're going to try different ideas until one stuck. The first one didn't stick. And as a team of six people, we couldn't figure out what the next thing was. And so we were kind of at this impasse where we'd raised some money from investors. And we had the runway and the resources and the team to build something. But we just didn't have a thing that we were all excited to work on. And so what we did have was a really strong group of people. We had the talent. And so when we reached out to Google and we said, hey, look, we have a really talented team that can solve problems in an area that you guys probably need to solve problems in. Do you want to buy the company for the sole purpose of having this team come work on your problems? 
They didn't at all care about anything that we'd built to date. They didn't want our office space. They didn't want anything. They just wanted the team to come work on problems because we'd hired a really smart team and they could see in the products we built that we were capable. And so on one hand, it's like, well, it was a success. Google gave us all really nice signing bonuses and jobs at Google and all the perks you get working at Google. But you know, no one made millions of dollars when that deal closed. So that was not the plan. The plan was to build something, grow it to billions of users and like, you know, millions of users and billions of dollars and all this. But it, we had to call it when we realized it wasn't going to work. Funny enough, the same thing happened the second time around. We, we went a lot further. We knew the product. We were all committed to the product. The, the whole idea was people are stressed out about money. It's the number one cause of stress, the number one cause of divorce in America. People don't know how to have peace of mind. But we found that when anyone worked with a financial planner and went through like a financial planning process, they felt better. So let's build software to make financial planners efficient so it was cheaper. Unfortunately, it like you know vitamins, financial planning is something that's never an urgent need. It's like it's very hard to get people to do it. It's not a pain point. And so people wanted it, but they didn't want it right now. And so the amount of money it took to get someone to sign up now from marketing, from reminding them, from sales calls, it was just so high relative to the revenue of the business that the model didn't work, which is unfortunate because everyone we had wanted financial planning. They just didn't want it now. They're like, right now I need to fix this leaky water heater. Right now my kids are in soccer practice and summer camp and all this stuff. I don't have time for it. And so people weren't willing to prioritize their finances. And I'm not sure if that will ever be solved unless AI can maybe just say, we're going to prioritize your finances for you and you don't have to think about it. So that business also didn't work. But we reached out to a lot of companies and said, look, we've spent three years tackling this problem. We think the way to solve it is to attach financial planning to a product that already has a customer relationship, that already has knowledge of a customer's finances, so you can more easily give them advice. You don't need to ask them, hey, can you share all this information? Hey, can you share all your goals? And so when I met the founder of Wealthfront, they had already had an investment product. They'd already had a high-yield savings product. And customers had already linked a lot of their accounts and specified their goals. And we had this vision at the company of automating people's financial lives. And we came in and called it self-driving money. And it was like, can we take all the knowledge we have and go build that? And so similarly, they wanted us as a team. Fortunately, they also wanted our lease, which was like a four-year lease, which is great because I was potentially on the hook for that. Uh, and so it wasn't, again, a payday. I don't think I, I got a job and some stock in the company. The company's still private. So today, you know, the, the sale to Wealthfront was releasing the obligations I had to a landlord and giving me a salary for a few years. So I think I just run a level set that you know we're in this world where everyone's scrolling Instagram and seeing all the successes and awesome stuff of their friends, but no one's posting about the debt here. And so I don't want to, you know, make everyone think that a sale always means you made money. You know, a sale means you found a way to provide a job for employees. You found a way for investors to, to have an option at potentially making back their money. So in this case, our investors got to take the money we had left over and invested in Wealthfront and hopefully get a return one day. Right. I'm glad you clarified about sales not always being a payday or, you know, you're getting millions, but it's also being able to leverage as something is not working out, how to make the best of it, how to use the assets you have. So obviously your team or the teams you've been on were an asset to other people that they wanted to keep or have on. And then like you just said, even like office lease. So when you were done with that side, when you sold or the company was bought, the last time, 
what happened next for you? So I used to, you spent some years working at Wealthfront and then what? Yeah. Yeah. So I love building products. So the job at Wealthfront was amazing. It was, let's go figure out how we can solve consumer financial problems and make people's financial lives better. And I didn't know what was next. I genuinely thought when I joined Wealthfront that I could work at that job for 20 years. Like It seemed like my job is to talk to customers and come up with product ideas that would make their financial lives better, solve this big stress in their lives. And we had a team of 100 engineers and dozens of designers and product managers to bring those ideas to life. And we did that multiple times over and over again. And in, in many ways, it was the best. And we haven't talked about this much at all, maybe in the intro, but I've just always been a person that loves to go down a rabbit hole to optimize something in my life. And so that could be finding the best insurance policy, figuring out the best health diagnostics that you should be doing, you know, learning negotiation tactics, travel hacking, everything. I probably have a spreadsheet for all of these things. Every time I'm, you know, researching a gardener, I'm going to have a spreadsheet uh, or maybe a Notion database these days. But when I got to this point of, the pandemic, I was like, I never got to share all the things. Like I thrived on going to dinner with friends, family, colleagues at conferences and telling everyone, hey, I just went down this crazy rabbit hole and here's the thing I learned. And now you don't have to go down the rabbit hole too. And I remember doing this with auto insurance. I was like, hey, I just requoted all my policies for everything. And then I would help people and we'd go requote them and they'd all save some money and I'd feel great. They'd feel great. It was awesome. And during the pandemic, none of that was happening because we weren't really going to dinners. We weren't really doing anything. And I was like, how do I keep sharing these ideas? And someone said, oh, you should have a podcast. And when I ran my startup, I had been on a podcast as guests. I had been felt comfortable behind a microphone. And I was like, oh, maybe I should try that. Because I tried blogging. I tried posting on social media, all my life hacks, travel hacks, and never did it last more than a month. Like I would write two blog posts and then I just couldn't stick to it. And I thought, okay, I'm going to commit to this. I'm going to record eight episodes. And I put it out there and it really resonated with people. There are a lot of people out there who are like, I would love to know uh, how to optimize something and not have to do all the research myself. And I built a relationship with uh, you know over a million listeners at this point who are you know trusting me to go dig into everything you need to know about you know, a smart home or solar or home energy and anything, and then find the most, you know, well-known expert or do the research myself and share all of that so that they don't have to do all the research themselves. And it just worked. And I just got so, so much fulfillment because I could spend 30 hours a week finding a cell phone plan, which I just recently did, and actually feel like that time wasn't wasted because now there are, you know, thousands or hundreds of thousands or maybe millions of people who are going to get that benefit and it makes me feel good about going down rabbit holes. And it's found a sustainable way that I can, you know, pay our mortgage <laughs> by going down rabbit holes that ultimately might only save me $300 a year. But, you know, in the long run, when you're, when you have a business around it, work out. And so it just got to the point that it was taking off so much that I knew I had to do it full time. And everyone around me had told me a year earlier, but to go back to being risk averse, I was like, I don't know this thing, you know, I have a salary at one job and this other thing, I'm not making as much money now. And they were like, it'll come. Don't worry, it'll come. And eventually it did. But for me, I had to kind of wait until I saw it. And I did an episode with Matt Higgins about who wrote this book called Burn the Boats. And it's such a powerful story that I wish I had read before I did this because I probably would have been convinced to do it sooner. But I wasn't willing to bet on myself full time for you know 18 months of the podcast, I should have done it six months in. 
but it took a while for me to do it. And, you know, if someone else had come to me and asked me if they should do it, I would have in a heartbeat said, yeah, quit your job and go all in. Uh, but for some reason, it was really hard for me. Right. Well, so the couple of things there I want to pull out. One is this idea that you spent a lot of time optimizing and going down rabbit holes. And as you were saying it, I'm like, that is the total opposite of me, right? Like, which is why your product that is the podcast that helps, you know, solve that problem works because I'm also, I'm not the person who wants to spend hours trying to save like a hundred dollars, you know, like if it's quick, I'll do it or I'll outsource it. Or it will just take me a long time to build up the energy <laughs> to make the calls. And like right now I know I should call, like I need to go negotiate my insurance, but I'm just like, I don't have the time. So with that, as you're now thinking or you thought about leaving your job, I know you said, you know, you had some encouragement. I'm, I'm sure you had spreadsheets and a backup plan and numbers, right? Like, but what, what did you do financially to prepare for that? Because I know there are a lot of people who have ideas. They may have something on the side. It's not making as much money. But how did you know that you were going to make enough doing this full time to walk away from that stability? Yeah, so... In my case, it was I just ramped up the business to the point that it was making enough that it was matching my salary. I think a, a better approach would have been save up enough to buy myself a runway, you know, and, and we'd had the savings, but just allocating it like mentally saying, let's put six months of my after tax income into a high yield savings account, which fortunately right now is super easy because rates are really high and put that money aside and say for six months, I've got myself covered. And if something doesn't work, I'll just find another job. Like I could have bought myself six months or a year or something. Instead, I took the time to wait and say, well, now this is making as much as my salary. But on one hand, that's a straightforward, easy solution. On the other hand, well, now I had two salaries. And so, you know, yes, this was making the same as my salary, but it was also going to cut right now, 100% of the podcast income at that point in time was just savings because I had a salary. It was about to go to a point where I would have no savings. So even for me, I was like, well, now now that I have enough income from the, my side hustle, now I'm throwing away all the savings. Do I really want to quit? Maybe I should give it six more months. Maybe I should just put another little more in the bank. And, and you can always just continue to ask yourself that question. So at some point, you have to say, this is not a long-term decision, right? If, if I need to get another job, I can. So it's a short-term thing. And the advice I would give both others and my previous self is if you can set aside enough money that you can get by without your salary, know that it's short term. Like you're not talking about if you make $100,000 a year, you, you're not talking about not having $100,000 a year for the next 40 years. You might be talking about not having it for six months. And if you make $100,000 for six months, that's 50,000, but you pay taxes on that. And so like the net cost to you might be 30,000. So like all of a sudden you took this thing that feels like losing your income for the rest of your life and you boil it down to a $30,000 problem. And by the way, if it's if you make 50,000 instead of 100, now it's a $15,000 problem. And $15,000 is a big number, but it's much more manageable to say, can I save 6 months of operating expenses? And by the way, in those 6 months you can cut back on a lot of things. You can say, well, we don't need it to be my normal 6 months of operating expenses because maybe if it doesn't work out, we'll eat out a little less or we won't buy, you know, you know, we won't order sushi once a week or whatever it is, your, your vice. And so now you can, we won't take that one extra vacation. Maybe you've cut it down to $7,000. And so now you're like, oh, wow, the cost to try this out for six months just went down three orders of magnitude in my head. And it feels much more approachable. I wish I'd had that conversation with myself like 18 months ago, but I don't know if I, I'm as risk tolerant as I might seem. 
Hey, Journeyers. If you are loving this podcast, then you will love my book, Your Journey to Financial Freedom, a step-by-step guide to achieving wealth and happiness. I wrote this book for you. This book is for you if you want a clear and enjoyable path to having more money, options, and a rich life. This book is for you if you hate your commute and the fact that you need to seek approval or permission from a boss. I hated that when I worked. This book is for you if you weren't born into wealth, you didn't marry rich or win the lottery, but you still want freedom. This book is for you if you're at a crossroads, a major decision or event is imminent. Maybe a career change, marriage, starting a family. Pressures are reaching a tipping point and the discomfort and the desire for more can no longer be ignored. And this book is for you if you find yourself zoned out at meetings, looking out the window or daydreaming about the life you truly want. So go pick up yourjourneytofinancialfreedom.com so I can show you how to map out how to get from where you are today to where you ultimately want to be and enjoy the journey while you're on the path. Head over to yourjourneytofinancialfreedom.com to see where you can pick the book up. It's available on Amazon, bookshop.org, Barnes & Noble, your local bookstore, everywhere. Go to yourjourneytofinancialfreedom.com to get the book now. When it comes to your finances, your personal finances, so, you know, you did the traditional thing, went to school, got, you know, the job, career, then you start to build businesses. How are you with your finances? I mean, I'm assuming you are, if you're optimizing for everything else, you were very good at optimizing and controlling your finances. So talk a little bit about your personal finance journey. I had this belief. So investment banking is not a fun career. I mean, some people might love it, but for me, I did not. And so my first few jobs, I was not what I would call fulfilled which basically gave me this financial independence attitude before I knew that that was a thing. I'd never heard of the FIRE movement at the time. But my attitude was, this job is not fun. If I have to do this for the rest of my life, I'll be miserable. So I need to save as much money as possible so that I have the freedom to not do this job. But like, I like traveling. I like having nice food. So I didn't want to just you know move to the middle of nowhere, eat beans and rice. So it was kind of like a little bit aggressive savings, but with a little bit of hacking the system to try to say, well, I want to take a vacation. So I'll do travel hacks. I want to, you know, live in a nice place. So I'll do house hacks, like finding all of the ways to get that experience without having to spend the the amount. But I was aggressively savings. And I think my attitude was always every dollar I made was savings. So any dollar I spent was borrowing from my savings. And I'm not saying that's a healthy mindset. I think I think some people's mindset is I save 300 bucks a month and if there's anything left, I can just spend it. You know, it's like the 29th of the month and they're like, well, my checking account still has an extra 500 bucks, so I might as well spend it. For me, I was like, do I want to dip into my savings to go out to dinner tonight? Do I want to dip into... Like that savings could be worth, you know, 30 times more if I wait till I'm 65. Like, do I really want to spend... Uh, you know, if, if you do that math, it's kind of crazy, right? You're like, do I want to buy a $500 couch? Well, that $500 could be $5,000 if I wait till I retire. So it's really a $5,000 couch. So maybe we'll stick with that IKEA thing from college. Like, I don't think that's necessarily healthy, but that was the approach I took because I so much didn't want to have to do a job I hated for the rest of my life. And as far as what I did with money, it was like, okay, let's take all of our money and put in index funds. Like, I was not trying to beat the market. I was not trying to do anything fancy. I was like, let's put all the money we save into index funds, max out any matching, max out 401ks, all that kind of stuff, and then not think about it. So I have a very unsexy investment portfolio. It's like a couple individual stocks 
some that because I worked at a company, uh, and the vast majority is just index funds and focus on other aspects of my life to try to make more money. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's basically how we are, too. I mean, I think the simple path to wealth, as JL Collins um, said, who's also been on the podcast, is just, you know, you don't have to beat the market or do more. Uh, that actually is just a waste of energy um, in terms of like the return you get. So I love the idea of thinking about it as 100% savings. I think that's, like you said, it's not necessarily healthy if you then have issues like then spending and enjoying your money, which is like part of the reason we have money after we reach security and we get like some stability with our finances. But I do like this idea of, especially for me, so I talk about this in my book, Your Journey to Financial Freedom. Then, you know, there are stages within the financial independence journey and the starter stages are the starter levels that you have to go through require a bit more effort and sacrifice and not necessarily in a bad way, but in order to get you through to like a more stable and enjoyable path and all parts of the journey can be enjoyable. But I like this idea of when you are in the earlier stages to look at it as, hey, you know, I may be, um, you know, spending like this, which then makes me not have this money in the future or allows me to stay into debt longer because I could have paid off that thing. The other thing I'd say is that you think, you know, for most people like yourself, like, are you still that way now? Like with your money, have you loosened up? Because that's what I don't like about, like when I hear the term optimizing, which I, I also use, I'm very careful to understand that some things can't be optimized, like the emotions and the relationships you have. And um, even though going out to dinner for X amount, you want to be careful, but it's like the community and the feeling you get when you're around others, right? Like that is something that always can be optimized. So are you different now or have you changed? And then let's talk about, is there optimizing too much? There's definitely optimizing too much. I, I've definitely changed. I, I, I sometimes kind of bite my tongue and say, no, I shouldn't waste my time and energy here. It's like, let's, let's focus on optimizing the bigger problems in life, not, not the smaller things. So I think I've moved up that ladder but I still get caught up. My wife and I still have the same problem. It's like, we're going to the grocery store and it's like, I know it doesn't matter that strawberries are like, seem like they're twice as expensive this week than last week, but like, it still irks me. Maybe we'll get blueberries instead. Like it, it, we shouldn't be optimizing for $3 problems, but we still are. But when it comes to relationships, it's funny. My version of optimizing is I know that's important. And so when we're going out to dinner with friends and we're going to dinner with family, like that's a meal that we just don't try to save money on. Because we know relationships are important and we've thought about it because we've taken the time to say, where in our lives do we want to optimize for certain things? We think relationships are important. So we're going to spend time and energy and money on travel to see friends or family and to do things. Um, that's important to us. That doesn't mean there's no way to optimize it, right? There's this app that recently... Uh, I don't want to get too pe people too excited because the deal has gone. But there's this app called InKind where you could effectively stack a bunch of savings offers between Chase deals and their promo. And I spent $100 and I now have like $350 of dining credit, right? So it's like, I still want to go out to a nice restaurant and I'm not going to think about the bill, but 250 of the dollars I spent at this restaurant were covered by some combo of a company's promotion and Chase's promotion. So I'm still trying to find the deals so that I can get stuff for better. But I'm not doing it at the expense of not going to a restaurant. Uh, I'm not doing it at the expense of not going on a trip. So I prioritize the things I want, find ways, if possible, to get a better deal on them. And if not, pay full freight because I decided they're important. Right. And then lucky for you, you also found a way to create a business um, that shares more of the process behind it. 
That's very helpful. Like I have a friend, I always, I, I laugh at her, in, but she, she actually, I guess, enjoys this. She would drive to different grocery stores depending on like what they're offering. I still don't think she's optimizing well because I'm just like, you have to pay for the gas though. You're not accounting for that. So even though you saved money by not buying the strawberries there, you just drove down, the, you know, but I think like with her and you, there's a joy. She gets joy out of, which is also something you can't optimize. So for me, pointless. I'll pay the extra $2 for a convenience for me not having to drive anywhere else. But there is something that she gets like that satisfaction from game. She thinks she's winning or the gaming the system. And for her, it works. So I think how you feel about something too matters a lot more than maybe um, whatever dollar amount you are saving, even if that involves saving money. Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot when it comes to like, do you need to go down the rabbit hole? Some I, I, Tapping into your intuition sometimes can really help. So I, I did this whole cell phone plan project where I was like, I need to save money. Verizon's too expensive. And a little bit of research. And I was like, I already know the answer. So I don't need to keep going. The challenge is what I've learned when it comes to decision making, especially when you're trying to find better outcomes, is that the decision doesn't usually come from the data. The decision is an emotional thing. And so until you step away from the analysis, it's very hard to decide. And it's very hard to go down analysis. So like analysis paralysis is maybe a little bit of a misnomer in my mind because you can never stop analyzing until, until you step away. So sometimes I'm like, can I step away earlier? I was like, I stepped away really early in the cell phone process. And I was like, yeah, we're just going to switch to T-Mobile. Like I, it's a very low stakes decision. It, we can reverse it if it doesn't work. The, it's not the most important. It's not like having a child where it's like not very reversible. It's the mo- it's like we're going to change cell phone plans. There's no contracts. Easy. That said, I then got so obsessed with understanding all these cell phone plans. Even after we switched, I went through the process of going really deep because I just love it. But it was no, lo- which was cool. I separated the decision. And now I was just doing the research for the love of it. Some people like to read books. I like to research cell phone plans or insurance policies. And many people listening are probably thinking, that sounds like the worst way to spend your time. Totally agree. I think reading a book is not as enjoyable. You might love it. But now the fact that I've been able to say, wow, this thing I love, other people get a lot of value out of it. Let's turn that into a business. Let's turn that into what I do. I don't think about saving the same at all. I don't even know if we saved money the last six months, uh, mostly because my wife quit her job and she's working on all the hacks also. And I'm like, I don't think we're saving money, but we're not losing money. We're not tapping into our savings, but we're not adding to our savings. But we really enjoy what we're doing and we see that we could do it forever. And now I care much less about needing to save as much as possible to pad our financial future because we've done that from our previous jobs. Now we can focus on actually spending the money we make. And I don't know if you've had um, Bill Perkins on the show, yep. but I did an episode with Bill Perkins about Die With Zero. And it's just like, it's kind of changed our whole attitude of like, what's the money for? Why do, we, why do we try to sock it all away in savings accounts and investment accounts? At some point, that money should be spent to do things that you can uniquely do now. And you have young kids, we have young kids. Like, what are the things that we can only do with them now uh, that if we wait until we're retired and they're living off on their own, we can't do? And let's make sure we prioritize those. Yeah, actually, um, so I took my kids to Disney World for the first time over the summer and I did a podcast episode about it, broke down the cost and thinking it came up to like just under 8,000. So rounded it up to 8,000 for a family of five. And I thought that was, you know, I thought it was actually going to be more before I started the process. And 
you know, I did the calculation on how much that could have went into investments and grown over time. And I got the, I forgot the number. And I said this on the podcast. I was like, but it's not for me. It wasn't about like, I don't care what it grows to over time. The experience that we had, and it was an optimal time for our kids to go at like the, the ages they are. And they were so engaged. And, you know, I'm just like, so it's things like that where you get caught up when, especially if you're money focused or financially focused, especially on this journey to financial independence, it can be easy to start optimizing to a point where you forget about life, like living outside of the spreadsheet. And like similar in a way to you, I mean, I wasn't as um, optimizing, if that's a word, or frugal as maybe some things. Um, but in the beginning, I thought I could be just so I could reach my financial goal and realize quickly, like, that is not what I want my life to be. And so I think it's something that some people, when they start the journey, like they think one thing and then as they start living life and, you know, realizing they can't pr- predict or optimize for everything and it's not worth it, they start to do things differently. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing that it's so easy to know how much your financial accounts grew, right? You see the, you know what you put in and you see it more. And those like dividends, literally from if, if from individual stocks, they're paying dividend income. You know, it's also capital gains and we don't have to go down that path. But this concept of memory dividends is super interesting. You could probably think back to that trip about Disney. You could probably talk about it with your family and get a lot of joy just remembering how much fun you had. Like that is valuable. And when you have a shared experience with someone later in life, whether it's a month later, a year later, a decade later, and you're talking about it, you're remembering it, you're looking at pictures of it, that's joy. And that joy is a, is very valuable. Like it, happiness is really important. And so we forget that if you spend the money to go to Disney now, you're going to relive those moments in conversation, in photos, in reflection for decades to come. If you wait 40 years and go on that trip to Disney, you know, when you're retired, when you can't keep up with your kids and their kids, it's just going to be a different trip and you're not going to have decades to remember it. And so, you know, yes, that money could have grown, but also by doing it earlier, you benefit from having those memories for the next for the rest of your life. And so I think people forget that experiences grow over time as well. Right, right. Well, one thing I do want to make sure we touch upon is your your points, um, your millions and millions of points and to give us tips on getting started. So, you know, I always like to say and uh, to make sure I say up front that travel hacking and credit card hacking is for a certain type of person. If you are in the beginning journey or stages in debt, you're not paying off that credit card every month. This is more an advanced strategy. This is not like a technique. Like, you know, this like it's almost like you play in a video game and like you don't get that tool yet until you get out of that stage. You go to the next level and then you can use that tool all you want, but you got to get out first. But now that we said that, I do want to share some tips and some insight on how you have been able to amass as many points as you have and then just tips for us beginners, because I, t- I also do that, but not not in the extent that you have. I don't have as, as many points. <laughs> well, I'll just add, I, I think a better metric would be how many points you've earned in your lifetime than how many you have. Because I, again, like having the points just means I'm not using them. And over the years, airlines and hotel groups all devalue their points by having higher costs. So it's actually not advantageous to hang on to them. I should be using them. But a combo of two kids under four and a pandemic have made using points the last few years hard. I assure you that once our youngest is able to kind of sit on a long plane ride sustainably, the points will be depleting quickly. But the whole thing started with, 
I was trying to cut all the expenses I could so that we could save more. So I didn't have to have a job I hated, but I didn't want to sacrifice the joy of life. Cause like, what's it all for? If you're just sitting at home, never going out, never meeting up with people, eating beans and rice, like maybe that's a life for some people, but it wasn't what I wanted. And the biggest variable expense that seemed obvious to cut, but brought so much sadness to think about cutting was travel. So I was like, how do we travel for free? And I'd gone on one trip in college where I'd used, I'd signed up for an American Airlines credit card, I think, and I had some points and I was able to go with some friends to Mexico and I didn't pay for it. And I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't have the money. Like I didn't have the money to go on this trip, but I went on it because I had opened this credit card and gotten these points. I was like, this is really cool. And so that was a adventure that just kept on, kept on going my whole life. And I would say the most simplistic way to break this down is banks really want your business and they're willing to give you lots and lots of points to open up a card. And that's, that's one path is just anytime you open up a card, you can earn, if you're picking the right cards, you know, let's say a good sign up bonus is like 80 to 100,000 points. So if over the course of you know a few years, you opened up 10 cards, you should be close to a million points. There are people that are really aggressive. And I've seen posts where people have opened with a spouse, I think like 25 cards in 18 months. And the craziest thing is their credit scores both went up throughout that process. So it's a little bit of a mis- misnomer that if you open up too many credit cards, you're going to ruin your credit. In this case, like both credit scores went up because they... Yes, they had a few inquiries about having opened up cards. Yes, the length of their history on average went up or went down because there were so many recent ones. But the total amount of credit they had available to them relative to how much they were using made them look much less risky. You have 20 cards, each with a $10,000 limit, and you don't increase how much you spend. Well, now banks are like, wow, this person isn't that risky. Because if they're risky, they would spend $200,000 and not pay it off. But they're not doing that. And so those welcome bonuses are really the way my listeners have accumulated. You know, I have people that have never started the points game and within a year built up a million points. And, and welcome bonuses are a big one. And then the other one is just making sure that every time you spend money, you're just getting the highest return you can. So if you're spending money on groceries, optimize for a card that's going to get you the best rewards for groceries. And if you're spending a lot of money on travel, the same goes there. So... That one's pretty easy. Uh, You could just look at how you spend your money and look at the cards out there and figure out which one's the best. I will caution everyone that when you go search like what's the best grocery card, there's like a million websites out there that have that title. But there are a lot of cards out there that the ranking of the cards on those articles matches how much they get paid, not which one is actually the best. And so I would say do a little bit of your own homework in the grocery example, the Capital Capital One Saver and Saver One cards are really great. Uh, and the Amex Gold card is really great. And then the Blue Cash Everyday maybe is like 6% back on groceries. Like those are some great grocery cards. Other people might list other ones. I'm not as big of a fan. City Premier, I think, is also really good on groceries. So that's one. And then the other is finding creative ways to spend money on your credit cards that is not money that you're that when you're not increasing your own spending. So a big part of the points I've amassed have been every single time I've been a part of a group trip, a family trip, anything, I've raised my hand and volunteered to plan the whole thing. And the only thing I ask is, let me put 15 flights on my credit card. Let me put 15 hotel rooms or seven hotel rooms on my credit card. Let me put the house we're renting for the vacation on my credit card. And so 
I'm not in a financial situation to take $100,000 of vacations a year, but I've definitely had years where I've helped plan $100,000 of vacations in a year. And that is a big help when you find a card that earns five points on uh, flights and you're buying 15 plane tickets for a trip. That can really accelerate your, your points earning without having to pay for it, assuming you trust that your friends will pay you back. That's what I was going to say. I was like, you have obviously family and friends that you trust and it will pay you back. I know a lot of people listening are like, I'm not doing that because I know my person is not going to like pay me back. (laughs) Prepay. Say the trip is going to be a thousand bucks. Everybody send me money and then I'll go buy the flights. Sometimes you have to do that. But that that is another big one is just finding um, things that you can spend money on uh, that that don't require you to increase your spending. Because it's never it's never a good outcome to say, ooh, I want a lot of points, so I'm going to go buy stuff I don't need. If you do one of those welcome bonuses and it's like, well, I need to spend three grand in four months to get 100,000 points, there are ways to spend that money earlier. So like you spend a lot of money on Amazon, go buy 500 bucks of Amazon gift cards. You spend a lot of money at Whole Foods, go buy a Whole Foods gift card. Take your purchases from four or five months from now and pull them forward. But don't spend money you don't need. Don't go say, oh, I'm going to go you know, buy the, go out to dinner 10 times this month that you're not going to get back. But if the, you know, gift cards is one where you can kind of front load the money. A lot of utility companies will let you like prepay your utilities or prepay your phone bill. Um, So I'm saying if you, if you're not going to hit the bonus, it's definitely worth finding a way to do it, but don't do it by spending frivolously, do it by prepaying things for a few months from now. Right. How do you balance the annual fee that some cards have versus like the points? And if you should keep it, uh, keep the card open or close it if the annual fee is coming up? Yeah. So I would say there's three things. One, a lot of annual fees seem scary until you dig and, and really make sure you're not getting all the value easily. So there are some cards where it's like, wow, this is a $500 annual fee. But the first $300 I spend on travel is reimbursed. Okay, well, it's not $500 as long as you're spending $300 on travel. But Amex Platinum Card gives you $50 every six months to go to Saks Fifth Avenue. If you're not going to spend money on Saks Fifth Avenue already, then that should be worth zero to you. Now, maybe you could go buy some stuff every six months and go sell it on eBay. But now what's your time worth? For us, I'm like, I really love Aesop Soap. I'm not going to buy $30 soap for the bathrooms in our house, but I'd probably buy like $10 soap. So if if $100 a year gets me $3 of soap, I'm getting about 30 or three soap things. I get $30 of value, not 100 So I try to normalize what the credits are actually worth to me. Uh, we do order out you know, once a month and we usually use Uber Eats. So the Amex Uber Eats credits, those are like I count them at face value. But... I don't count the Equinox credit at face value because I don't use Equinox. And if I went and opened up an Equinox membership, I would be spending more money than the credit and I would actually lose, you know, I'd be down. So I think you have to look at it on a card by card basis. However, if that annual fee is not worth the value, then I would call the, call the card after one year when the annual fee posts and say, hey, I'm just not getting the value. And you've got two options, or I guess you have three. One, they might give you a retention offer. And they might say, hey, if you can spend two grand on this card, we'll give you 20,000 points. And you're like, oh, well, now if I factor those 20,000 points in, now the annual fee is worth it. Or I've had them just waive the annual fee. Well, okay, well, then the annual fee is worth it because they waived it. Uh, if they won't, then you can often downgrade the card to a card with a lower or no annual fee. So the Chase Sapphire collection is notorious because you can downgrade them to the Chase Freedom line, no annual fee cards. Great options. Worst case, if you can't downgrade it and it's not worth it and you can't get an offer, you can always close it. 
you know, it's not the end of the world to close a card. Uh, the only situation where that's a bummer is if it's like the oldest card you've had for 20 years. But I'm imagining in almost everyone's case, the card they opened first that they've had for 20 years is probably not the card with the $500 annual fee. So if you do have one of those old cards, I would just try to make sure you put one expense on it a year, put a cheap recurring bill, have a tradition. I have a tradition where every around the holidays, we go buy all these like little small things. And it's like our chance to go out and use the four or five cards that we never actually use to go like spend $5. So in the holidays, I put $5 on all the cards we have just so we never... They, they still remain active. But yeah, so I would say if you have a card that's not worth it, get a retention offer, downgrade it. And if none of those work, cancel it. But wait until after 365 days. Because a lot of cards have this rule where if you cancel a card within 365 days, they kind of flag you as someone that probably opened it for the bonus. But if you cancel it at 366 days, uh, I guess maybe 367 if it's a leap year, then you're in, in a different bucket and you're in a lot better space. Last question on the credit cards. How do you keep track of all this? And obviously, I know you have a spreadsheet, but like for some average person, how do you know like what the bonuses are? Is it like when you open the car, you need to like track everything? It just seems like a lot of work. Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're doing this one one at a time, so like it seems like a lot of work if you're like, wow, you have 15 cards. And, and I just released an interview today with someone who I think has 40 cards and, and, and they definitely need a spreadsheet. What I would say is tracking the bonuses, like just work on one at a time. And then it's really easy to track. You know, if you have one card that you need to spend three grand in four months, you can keep track of one. Now, once you get to a point that you might have 10 cards open and you're like, when are the annual fees due? What's going on? What, all this stuff. You can put it in a spreadsheet. There are two apps I like. Both have free versions. One is called Travel Freely and one is called Card Pointers. And Travel Freely is more just like track all the cards you have, when the annual fees are due and all that kind of stuff. Card Pointers goes a little bit above and beyond that. And you can add all your cards to it. It'll remind you of all the credits that you have to spend. It'll even tell you what the best card is for a category. But they do have a pro version that you have to pay for. But all these offers that these cards have, and some people don't know about this, but if you log into Chase, there are all these offers you can add. And, and Amex has them and City and Capital One have them. And there are things that you might already spend money on. There have been times where I log into Amex and it's like, hey, if you spend more than $10 on a wireless bill, we're going to give you $5 back every month. It's like, great. If you add that offer, you get $5 back. If you don't add that offer, you get nothing. And the Card Pointers Pro, if you have the browser extension installed, every time you log into your bank, your Amex, your Chase, whatever, they automatically just enroll you in all the offers. And I've had multiple times where I was looking at my credit card statement and I just got a credit for a purchase that I didn't even know there was an offer for. And that credit has now more than paid for Card Pointers. Uh, and so that is one where I can kind of manage all the cards I have, how long I've had them, uh, and just kind of when the fees are due and that kind of stuff. All right. Not a spreadsheet. Not a spreadsheet. Yeah. Well, surprising. Well, you you're able to optimize it and like make it digital or find a digital solution. But more, this is about financial independence. Are you financially independent? Um, what's your motivation now for working? Is it really because your brain is wired this way that you need to do this? Or is your goal still to reach um, early financial independence or early retirement? So yes, I'm financially independent. I think with an asterisk that if I wanted to never work again, do we have enough money saved that we could never work again if we lived somewhere that's not unreasonable? Yes. Right now we choose to live in like the Bay Area, which is super expensive. So I would say like if we're willing to move, yes. If we stay, TBD. Depends on how the market does. 
But the motivation to work, it doesn't really feel like work, right? Like I want to go down the rabbit hole of looking at every cell phone plan. I just now found a way to turn that into a job. And so, yes, there are weeks where I'm like, oh, I have to get an episode out. And I just, you know, it's been a long week. So there are days when it feels like work. But on the whole, 95% of what I'm doing is like what I would do anyways. And it just happens that I've found a way to make it make it become uh, you know, a career or, or at least a, a profession and get paid for it. But uh, just for anyone listening, I didn't know that going into it. I didn't start... You, you, no one, by the way, should start a podcast with the intent of making money because very few podcasts end up working and making money. And almost every podcast that has worked out and made money was started by someone that would have done that podcast without making money. There are probably some celebrity ex- you know, exceptions to that, but you have to want to do it and you have to want to do it for a long time. If you look at the number of videos that the average YouTube channel with a million v- million subscribers has made, it's like over a thousand. Like podcasting, the average... like People have to produce a lot of content. So you can't expect to just start a podcast and have it make money. You know, I'm on episode 100 plus. You're on episode... I don't know, more than that. And, and, and it takes a while. So... I didn't come into this with the expectation of making money, but it worked out. I think that many people, if you try hard enough at things you love, there will be some financial revenue opportunity, but it might not be obvious and it might not come right away. Yeah. Well, Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing more of your journey, some tips for uh, hacking all the things. Please tell everyone where we can find out more about you. Yeah, uh, you can go to allthehacks.com. You're listening to a podcast. You could just search all the hacks. There aren't a lot of all the hacks out there. So I would say start with the podcast, find an episode that looks exciting and let me know what you think. All right. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. Don't forget, you can get the episode show notes for this episode by going to journeytolaunch.com or click the description of wherever you're listening to this. And you can still grab your jumpstart guide for free to help you on your journey to financial freedom by going to journeytolaunch.com slash jumpstart. If you want to support me and the podcast and love the free content and information that you get here, here are four ways that you can support me and the show. One, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast wherever you listen, whether that's Apple Podcasts, that purple app on your phone, your Android device, YouTube, Spotify, wherever it is that you happen to listen, just subscribe so you are not missing an episode. And if you're happening to listen to this in Apple Podcasts, rate, review, and subscribe there. I appreciate and read every single review. Number two, follow me on my social media accounts. I'm at Journey to Launch on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I love, love, love interacting with journeyers there. Three, support and check out the sponsors of this show if you hear something that interests you. Sponsors are the main ways we keep the podcast lights on here. So show them some love for supporting your girl. Four, and last but not least, share this episode, this podcast with a friend or family member or coworker so that we can spread the message of Journey to Launch. All right, that's it. Until next week, keep on journeying, journeyers. Journeyers.